A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Montreal seems as unlikely a place for baseball as the Canadian Northwoods for orchids. Queen Elizabeth is on the money, Joan of Arc is in many hearts, and the hockey Canadiens are worshipped as winners. Perhaps characteristic of the humble beginnings and high hopes of the first big league team outside the U.S. is Coco Laboy, who toiled through nine minor league seasons before getting a chance this year. These people here, they crazy about baseball, and uh, they come to see us every day there, even if we lose every day. Well, are French fans different from, let's say, Puerto Rican fans? Well, they are a lot different, yeah. In Puerto Rico, you have to have a winning team all, all the time, but here, they don't care if we're going bad. Montreal returns his warmth with a bon chance for his birthday. Dear to the fans is Rusty Staub, who, when a trade seemed to be falling through, refused to return to Houston. He loves the fans for sticking with the club through a 20-game losing streak. Some people really wanted us to lose four or five more games to set a world a world record, you know, or the, or the establish the record in the major leagues because of the fact that it just seemed like the thing to do after losing 20. But we really weren't for that. We're glad we, you know, discontinued losing streak at 20 games. But uh, I just, I, I really can't tell you enough about the way the, the fans here have made most of the players here feel. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey everybody, how are you? My name is Tim Hanlon. Welcome to the proceedings that we like to call Good Seats Still Available. Yep, it's our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. God forbid we uh, try to entertain you and keep you distracted yet again this week. We all know uh, what kind of challenges uh, we're all going through. We hope, first of all, that you're all uh, healthy uh, and uh, staying sane and uh, doing all the right things that you should be doing. Uh, if you're out there uh, in the wild, uh, acting as a first responder or a critical uh, needs uh, person uh, of uh, either in the healthcare space or in the food services industry, or perhaps you're in the uh, uh, the delivery world or, or the delivering mail, for for example, uh, all those other things, frankly, that are maybe you're on the uh, your trucker out there and you're kind of delivering goods and stuff. You know, you're in your own ways. You're you're putting yourselves uh, at risk and you're uh, you're doing things that, uh, frankly, are helping everybody else out there. And uh, we, of course, want to tip our this week baseball cap. And we'll get into that in a second uh, to you for uh, all those things that you're doing. And we'll also tip our cap. Uh, to just all of you who are listening and uh, doing all the right things that you should be doing in your own respective worlds uh, with your families, your friends, uh, your loved ones, uh, keeping safe, uh, doing all the things that you should be doing and avoiding all the things that you should not be doing. Uh, and uh, we wish you uh, all the best in uh, in maintaining one's sanity as uh, we all try to figure out this uh, life uh, ahead together. Uh, and uh, we're here for you in our own little distracting way uh, a little frivolity that we uh, uh, forward you to this week as we do each and every week. It's uh, in the grand scheme of things, obviously very minor, uh, but hopefully something that uh, is at least entertaining uh, for uh, a few moments time. And this week, 
uh, we are finally able to get into a story that uh, we've uh, looked for an entree for some time into. And and we're going to use this week's episode, our guest this week, Danny Gallagher, uh, to kind of get into our initial foray. And there will be plenty more, I'm sure, into the stories, plural, of the Montreal Expos. And that uh, little clip there that you heard uh, was a, a, a beautiful little uh, ditty from... Uh, a guy in the Wayback Machine from the old CBS News uh, world. His name was Haywood Hale Brune. And uh, if you ever, uh, if you remember watching uh, CBS evening news broadcasts on the weekends in the late 60s and, and throughout most of the 1970s, you'll know that Haywood Hale Brune was uh, sort of the uh, poet laureate, I guess, of, of sports uh, and uh, uh, was uh, uh, quite the uh, feature writer and producer and, uh, uh, and storyteller. Uh, and that clip was from uh, I, I, I don't know what date that was from uh, from the CBS Evening News, but uh, it was reconstituted uh, from a show that uh, ESPN Classic did basically uh, comprised of all of uh, many of, uh, of Haywood Hale Brune's uh, reporting. It was called Woody's World. We grabbed that clip. And that was, of course, uh, Mr. Brune talking about, uh, in this case, 1969, which was. Uh, the debut a few months in to that of the Montreal Expos, their first ever season in Major League Baseball. And we get into uh, that topic, the uh, beginning in the middle and, uh, and and a bit of the sad end or the uh, maybe not so sad end uh, of the Montreal Expos. And, and we also get into the once again, possibly of this story, because as you probably well know, if you follow baseball uh, over the last number of years, Montreal has certainly... Uh, uh, somehow uh, remembered uh, that it had a baseball team. And for many years, as we get into our conversation with Danny in a few moments, uh, it wasn't necessarily for for a lot of those years, although there were some exceptions, uh, sort of warmly and robustly embracing these expos, uh, especially in the waning years, the 90s and the, and the, and the early aughts. Uh, and it was a messy divorce, uh, 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 them leaving Montreal and splitting some seasons in Puerto Rico, of all places, and and the sort of ham-handed way that they wound up going to Washington to become the Nationals. And we, we get into a whole bunch of that stuff. But the the story of how Montreal actually has quite a bit of baseball history prior to 69. Uh, they were angling to get a pro team at the highest level in major leagues uh, as early as, uh, you know, the, the beginning of the decade of the 60s. Uh, Jackie Robinson, of course, famously played uh, some minor league ball with the Royals up in Montreal. But as we get into our conversation with Danny Gallagher, uh, he, the writer of, of count them, six books of uh, of Montreal Expos history, including his latest work, always remembered new revelations and old tales about those fabulous Expos. And we get into some of those as well. Uh, it's a great and fascinating story. And it's been, geez, a whole bunch of years now uh, since Montreal has uh, had that baseball sort of frenzy. And uh, as we get into uh, our conversation, you'll hear that uh, Warren Cromarty in particular uh, pretty instrumental in sort of helping us uh, stoke uh, the fire anew of nostalgia around the Expos and exhibition games and Toronto Blue Jays coming to play some games and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, and look, they're you know, they're in the mix uh, all of a sudden, you know, the idea of possibly sharing uh, a season or two or more, maybe longer term uh, with the Tampa Bay Rays as they kind of perhaps uh, uh, struggle through their stadium situation and arguably maybe not uh, long for uh, remaining in that market. Uh, you know, Montreal has somehow uh, risen 
in stature for potentially a relocation of a team. And there are certainly a handful of teams uh, that could qualify, Tampa being one of them, perhaps Miami being another. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I doubt, frankly, expansion is is really sort of uh, in the cards, especially now. But make no mistake, if baseball is to uh, look uh, a field from uh, its current uh, ports of call, I, I think Montreal is somehow uh, almost uh, uh, oddly and uniquely uh, found itself back into the mix. And uh, we're going to get into a little bit of the original Expos. Uh, it's certainly not comprehensive, and, and there's so many, many stories to get into. Uh, but we do touch on, uh, on some of the great stars, uh, some of the uh, the hijinks. Uh, we even get into Yuppie, the uh, uh, enigmatic uh, uh, mascot that is now, uh, even more uh, strangely, uh, no longer uh, a part of the uh, the Expos uh, and or Nationals uh, lineage, but now is part of the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, so he's a mascot for them now. So there's a whole bunch of interesting and fun-filled uh, uh, stories and anecdotes that we get into with our guest this week, Danny Gallagher, as we talk about the Montreal Expos, the first of, I'm sure, many conversations that we'll have about this very curious and interesting and occasionally decent uh, and high-quality team, but they never really got over the uh, the hump there to sort of get into sort of playoff glory. We get into all of that and more in just a couple of seconds. Uh, and before we do so, we want to, uh, of course, tip our uh, Montreal red, white, and blue cap uh, in the general direction of one of our great sponsors this week. And of course, this week at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, our pal Dean, Dean Mitchell in San Diego way, uh, in the, the beautiful uh, area of uh, deep Southern California. Uh, Dean and his, uh, his pals have uh, continued to curate a lovely collection of great sports memorabilia. If you're looking for media guides or programs or ticket stubs and magazines or, or even jerseys or pennants and all kinds of memorabilia from just about every professional and even collegiate sports, frankly, even international sports competitions that you're looking for, whether it's football or baseball, certainly soccer, how about basketball or hockey, uh, you know, even the Olympics or tennis, stadiums, uh, racing, you name it, all of those things, well curated, well lit, and beautifully photographed at sportshistorycollectibles.com. This ain't no general uh, uh, dimly lit free-for-all like an eBay. No, no, no. This is stuff that's uh, you know high quality, and uh, it's got some stories and history behind it, and you get lots of great imagery to sort of really get a sense of what you're looking for. And yes, very reasonably priced, and new stuff just about every week. And uh, it's all there for you to check out at Sports historycollectibles.com. And uh, of course, when you're checking out, we wouldn't leave you hanging. No, of course not. We got a promo code for you and we're going to get, that's going to, that's going to score you 15% off all, uh, all of your purchases. And that promo code is good seats. Make sure you use the promo code good seats. When you go to sportshistorycollectibles.com, make lots of purchases. Why don't you? And save 15% off all of them. And uh, we thank Dean and we thank our, uh, our, uh, your sponsorship of uh, uh, of this uh, silly little show for, God, almost three plus years now. And uh, we can't uh, thank you enough, Dean, and sportshistorycollectibles.com. All right. We can't thank you enough for listening, not only through all of that great promotional uh, messaging and checking out our great sponsors and sites, uh, but of course, for continuing to listen as we get into our first at bat, as uh, as they might say, as we get into the story, the beginnings of the story of the Montreal Expos. Here it is. Please enjoy. Enjoy. 
maybe you can sort of give our audience a bit of a sense of what is your relation to this team? How how has it become sort of a semi-passion of yours? Because you're you've written a whole number of books on on this team. Uh, there must have been some sort of overlying or underlying reason as to why this has been such a a big topic in in your life. Maybe a little background there. Yeah, for sure. Well, in 1969, the Expos came into the National League as a franchise, and that's when I started to change for the um, Expos in my hometown near Ottawa, Ontario, which is maybe two hours uh, west of Montreal. I grew up in uh, a small town called Douglas, Ontario, near Ottawa, and obviously got connected with the Expos by chain for them. And our local team, uh, adult team in Douglas, we decided to call our team the Douglas Expos. So, and then over the course of the next few years, number of years, uh, I would go to a number of games uh, at, a, at Jerry Park and then later Olympic Stadium, you know, to watch the uh, Expos play, either with family members in a car or maybe on a bus. So that's how I got... Uh, really acquainted with the Expos. And then, of course, in 1988, uh, I became a Expos beat writer for the Montreal Daily News, which is no longer in business. But I continued to cover the Expos for a number of years in Montreal as a beat writer for other media outlets. So I do have a pretty good uh, connection with the Expos. And then, of course, you know, since then, uh, written, you know, hundreds of articles about the Expos and the possible return of baseball to Montreal, and I've written six books about the Expos, so pretty uh, tuned into the Expos. Well, yeah. Oh, so I guess the question then, generally, is why? Uh, what is it? What is it, or was it about this team? I, I get the, a little bit of a sense that you know some of your pre-career, you know, pre-journalism work or life, frankly, was frankly as a fan, I guess, as as all people in sort of the region might have been, that being at the first Major League Baseball team in. In Canada, right? Exactly. So, 1969, uh, the Expos beat the Blue Jays by, you know, a number of years. The Blue Jays came in 1977. So, the Montreal was the first major league team in Canada. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite experiences, we talked, you talked about the pre- journalism days. I was actually a reporter at the time, but I wasn't covering the Expos. I was uh, in Ottawa covering, um, working for a newspaper called the Ottawa Journal, a daily newspaper. And that, one of the big highlights of going to see those Expos play was the occasion in late July of 1979 when Rusty Staub returned to the Expos uh, uh, from a uh, from the Detroit Tigers in a trade after he had been away from the team for a number of years. He was the early franchise hero from 69 to 71, and then he was traded away. But then, you know, in 1979, he made that appearance back home for the first time uh, in the trade. So it was a doubleheader, and... Um, so the first game he didn't he didn't play he had to sit on the bench. But in the second game he came in as a pinch hitter, and wouldn't you know there was fifty nine thousand people in the stands. It was just electrifying at Olympic Stadium. Just the place was just rocking, and he came in to 
it was introduced as a pinchero, and the place just went nuts. So he tried to step into the batter's box, and he just couldn't because the, the crowd was so loud, and he had to back out two or three times to let the the fans cheer for him. So that was one of that's one of my maybe the favorite moment in Expo's history for me. Well, look, and I guess that's also because he was one of the original members of of the team when they when they started in '69. Now I grew up in the New York area, right? So I I know of Rusty Staub mostly as a New York Met, right? Obviously near the sort of in the twilight of his career, and still, you know, arguably well well loved and revered as a Met for sure then. But I, I, it's probably even a, a, a pales in comparison to, I guess, how reverential that that he was. I guess from being just well-known as a standout in the early days and then, frankly, coming back home again, so to speak, in the middle of his career in, in 79 that you're you're talking about. Exactly. Like, he, you know, he was called the Grand Orange because of his red hair, and he was popular in the city, popular with his teammates. So he was just a... And across Canada, he was a great, uh, well-loved figure across Canada as well. So he had a lot going for him, and when he was traded to, uh, you know, the Mets for Ken Singleton, Mike Jorgensen, and Tim Foley, you know, a lot of people were unhappy about it, and, you know, for eight years he played elsewhere. So when he came back, it was quite a homecoming for that particular game. He didn't, you know, he never did get to play too much, uh the rest of the 79 season, but people still think of it uh, as a pretty good moment that he came back and was so well-loved. Well, maybe we should dial back a little bit because, you know, you're talking about 79 and, and, and some, you know, and we get into the 80s too, which is certainly and a lot of notable sort of ups, if you will, in the Expos history. But, you know, going back, I mean, the whole idea of, of, a, of a franchise in Montreal uh, specifically or Canada generally, right, was quite novel, although, you know, I think baseball's history in Montreal was was fairly uh, uh, substantial in the, in the minor leagues, right? Jackie Robinson playing with the Royals uh, prior. Um, but I guess the whole notion of, of a baseball team in Montreal wasn't, it wasn't a success from the start for sure, and it wasn't guaranteed to even happen uh, given all the, the fits and starts. I mean, this this idea even of Jerry Park, right, was arguably temporary at, at, at best in the early days. But I don't know, I guess, I, how conscious of you were, how conscious were you, shall we say, if uh, were you of the team when they came aboard in, in 69? And, and and how much of a big deal was it at the time? Was was it open arms or, or suspicious or, or, or what uh, in 69? <laughs> it was, uh, you make a really good, point there, Tim. In 1962, Jerry Snyder, who was a Montreal city councillor appointed by the mayor, John Drapeau, to pursue the possibility of getting a major league team in Montreal, he started going to major league baseball meetings, as they say, in 1962, to beat the drums about the uh, Montreal being a good location to have a franchise. And, you know, it went on for a number of years, but he, Jerry Snyder just kept plugging away and plugging away. And he finally convinced the major league owners to 
give Montreal a franchise in 1968, and you talked about Jackie Robinson and his connection with the Montreal Royals. Well, the Dodgers owner decided that Walter O'Malley, he knew that connection between Montreal and baseball, and he he helped side with uh, Joey Snyder at the Major League Baseball owners table, and, and uh, it was approved that uh, Montreal would get a team. And you talk about the the fact that the in the early days of Montreal getting the franchise, it, it was all kind of in doubt. That, that is correct because the ownership group was kind of in jeopardy. Some uh, people didn't want to come on board. And finally, Charles Broppen, who eventually became the majority owner, uh, moved in and said, I'm not letting this team go to uh, Buffalo or whoever it is that was rumored to take over Montreal. They couldn't come up with the the money to keep the team in Montreal. That would be, you know, in 1968. And then in August of 1968 is when it was fi- like officially announced that that Montreal would have the team, even though it was months earlier. But all of this work had to be done by Bronfman to get the money uh, on board to keep the team in Montreal. And you also mentioned, Tim, Jerry Park was finally became an option after a number of other places just didn't fit the bill for Major League Baseball uh, people. And so, yes, so so it before they even played a game, the Expos did have some issues that finally had to be resolved. Well, I guess a couple of things there. So number one, I mean, sort of the, the stadium landscape there in, in Montreal at the time. I mean, this is obviously before uh, the 1976 Olympics and, and even a glint in anybody's eye about uh, a modern stadium as, as, as part of that, right? But um, you, you also had... I guess this this Autostad thing, which I know the Montreal Olympique uh, in the North American Soccer League uh, played in a, a very, for lack of a better term, curious construction. Uh, and and uh, it, that sort of didn't even fit the bill. So I guess this Jerry Park thing was was uh, almost temporary by nature. And I, I guess assumed to only be a, uh, a short term solution uh, and i guess to sort of keep people uh comfortable with the fact that that montreal was going to get a team i guess my real question is it took a lot longer didn't it for a more modern stadium that in the the, the shape of olympic stadium to to become the home but i it seems that the, the 70s were kind of just dominated by uh, uncertainty i guess maybe about where they're going to where they're going to be domiciled uh was olympic stadium going to be even in the realm of consciousness and it seems a bit strange as a way to get going and 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 ingratiate yourself with the with the local populace, uh, with uh, such shaky, I guess, uh, understanding of maybe where where the team is going to play. For God's sakes! Exactly, like the you mentioned the Autostad and then the old Royal Stadium called Delormier Downs. Well, Delormier Downs was considered like too small. The Autostad was kind of like, you know, for soccer and and uh, other things. The football team played a little bit at the Autostad. And uh, finally, uh, you know, a couple of people in the media, including Expos announcer 
uh, one of the future Expos announcer, Russ Taylor, who was a local Montreal broadcaster, he came up with the idea of telling uh, Chubb Feeney the, and the Commissioner Bowie Kuhn at the time about this possibility of this little ballpark at the Jerry Park. And uh, so they all went over there one time in 1968, and that seemed to convince Bowie Kuhn and Chubb Feeney that this ballpark was was efficient enough to to allow Montreal to take the team because it was in kind of jeopardy, as you say, you know, and finally, it was, you know, Jerry Park was accepted and fixed up and no more than maybe, I think, uh, 29 or 30,000 seats. But, and, you know, even then, you know, Jerry Park, it was a quaint, cute little cozy ballpark. But I think they, Montreal wanted something more, like something better long before 1976 or 1977 when they finally moved in. But all those years they played at Jerry Park and it was the fans kind of loved, fell in love with the place. Oh, kind of cozy, I would imagine. But but also, I, I guess there are a couple of things conspiring there. I mean, one is, you know, the team was certainly not doing all that well uh, in the early years, which frankly, most expansion teams didn't and kind of still don't. I mean, although the economics are a little different now, but it also, I also get the sense too that, um, and this is now vague recollection, but Olympic stadium, right. Which was obviously the sort of the crown jewel, I guess, of facilities, uh, with respect to the now looming or then looming 1976, uh, summer Olympic games. Uh, it's my understanding that it was, I guess, uh, to put it charitably delayed, and and I my thought is that that I guess the expos were expecting perhaps to have uh, perhaps ex access to that even before the Olympic Games and that sort of fell through. What why did it take until I guess seventy seven years I guess five six seven years later than I think people thought that Jerry Park was going to be used for them to finally get into this brand new uh, stadium and and maybe you know get on with it. Yeah, it was crazy because. Of the construction delays, uh, millions and millions of dollars away over budget, Tim, and uh, they spent a fortune on construction and truck drivers who were, you know, putting in bills that they for for dumps of gravel that they never made. It was a way. It was a like a catastrophe of overspending and uh and it's right they uh, they wanted to move in before 1976 but uh it the a lot of construction delays and uh, it was really uh too bad because it uh it would have been a a big difference to uh jerry park even though charles Brappen he never did like Olympic Stadium because it it was too expanse, expansive and too big and uh, just too much concrete. And uh, he, he always thought it was never a, a baseball stadium. Well, yeah, and I, I've been there a couple of times, and, and obviously it's still there, and it, it, it houses uh, the, the Montreal uh, uh, impact uh, for a few a few games uh, every year, Major League Soccer, et cetera. Um, and still, you know, it's, it's a, a fascinating structure to me for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I guess it was I guess it was sort of 
it was sort of almost a, a, a dichotomy in that it, it was sort of a, viewed as a white elephant even going into the Olympics because of all those construction delays and, and overspending and, and, and all of that stuff. But then it also felt, you know, uh, like it was a, a shot in the arm, given the decline in, in the attendance in those mid-70s at Jerry Park. It was it's obviously it was a shot in the arm, I guess, in terms of getting people to relook at the team and, you know, being in a brand new, if you will, modern facility. But it, it, it really did, I guess, become perceived as almost like as a white elephant uh, generally and maybe almost uh, – uh, it was certainly not the most cozy and uh, inviting, I guess, of environments to play baseball across Major League Baseball, right? Yeah, you know, in 1979 to 82, and maybe even 1983, actually, you could say that was a blessing to have a big stadium like that because a lot of times when they had that little dynasty from 79 to 83, that place was electrifying. You get crowds in the 50,000s, 50 to 60,000 a game a lot of times, and it was quite the place to be. That was the golden era of, of baseball in Montreal in that particular time in the late 70s uh, and early 80s. So it was a blessing to have a stadium like that. Okay, so how much of that then was sort of being in a modern stadium with more conveniences and all that kind of stuff and how much of it was uh the fact that you had uh and obviously as we see over time uh, just standout slash all-star slash hall of famer type players in, in people like you know gary carter and steve rogers and tim raines andre dawson and tony Perez. i mean you had uh, dick williams as the manager i mean that was how much of it was the fact that they were finally competitive and and, and full of quality play uh versus that of the stadium itself or, or were they just kind of partnered, I guess, in, in in instilling excitement for this team. Yeah, it's interesting that when they moved into Olympic Stadium from Jerry Park in 1977, that's when that core of players that you just mentioned started to gel. They may have been there a, a year or two, or Dawson, who started in 1977, the first year at Olympic Stadium. That core of players started to gel and become the nucleus of a team that finally gelled in 1979 when they almost made the playoffs, winning 95 games and going over 500 for the first time since they had started in 1969. From 69 to 78, 78, they had never finished at 500 or above. And finally, in 79, they won 95 games, and wouldn't you know it, they never made the playoffs because the, the Pirates beat them out. And then, you know, 1980, they got beat out again. They won over 90 games again, and the Phillies beat them out and at the last game when Mike Smith hit the home run off of Stan Bonson. And then, you know, 90, excuse me, in 81, the Expos finally win a playoff berth um, in the strike-shortened season and play 10 playoff games, uh, beating the Phillies in a five-game series and then losing to the Dodgers in uh, five games on uh, the Blue Monday game. You know, and then 82 was another great team, but they uh, they suffered uh, badly in the latter half of the season and just kind of faded, but... Tim, they had a pretty good nucleus of teams there from 79 to 82. 83 
was wasn't quite as good, but no, and yeah, and and this is also you young web young web snappers out there, right? This is also before the uh, the thing called the wild card uh, teams and all that kind of stuff, which arguably and it took a long time. And this is a great example, frankly, about maybe why I don't know why it took so long in baseball. Obviously, a lot of tradition and all that, but you wonder if if uh, you know more than. Uh, just the division winners uh, in baseball at that time, i.e., adding a, a, a wild card team or two, as we currently have today, might have been an interesting, different sort of history for Montreal, given the fact that they were so close but no cigar in those years in particular. Um, but I want to go back to 1981 because uh, you even read a, a specific book about Blue Monday, which you referenced. I want to sort of maybe circle around that in the 1981 season, unique as it was overall in baseball and maybe specifically unique and maybe ultimately frustrating for a lot of different reasons for the for the, for the the Spos. Maybe you can give our audience a little bit of a sense of, I mean, you've already described sort of this sort of mini uh, dynasty or at least this mini uh, uh, phenomenon of the, of the Expos during these years. Attendance too, by the way, I think they were one of the top three or four teams in Major League Baseball, frankly, uh, with attendance, right, which is completely uncharted territory for the team at the time. But they were winning, uh, very, uh, doing very strongly and coming just close, uh, maybe unfairly so, uh, into making the playoffs. But 81, they finally did, but under the weirdest of circumstances. And frankly, it didn't end all that well. And that was a strange story in and of itself, too. Exactly. See, the the players went on strike in... uh the early part of the 1981 season, and uh, they were away for several months, and then they finally uh, settled with the management that they would go back uh, playing. And then, uh, so the last couple of seasons, the last couple of months, uh, it turned out that there was some weird playoff formats that were were settled uh, where the first half Winner would play the second half winner in uh, the division playoffs in both leagues, and the Expos won the second half, so they ended up playing uh, the Phillies, who had won the first half. It was funny, like the Phillies already knew when the strike was settled. The Phillies already knew that they were going to be in the playoffs, but the Expos had to really fight uh, hard to you know, win the second half and finally end up playing the uh, Phillies in the National League Division Series and best of five. And what was really um, upsetting to the Cincinnati Reds and the, and the St. Louis Cardinals is that overall they had better records at the end of the year than the Phillies and the Expos, but they never made the playoffs. So they were pretty upset about that. But uh, anyway, that's how the Expos get in. They had a, a good second half, helped up by the division, uh, the uh, playoff clinching game in New York when Wallace Johnson hit the two-run triple, one of I guess the biggest triple in Expos history, to get the Expos into the uh, postseason against the Phillies. Well, uh, they they also changed managers though, right? Right after the 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 strike shortened. Uh, resumption of the season, right? So that 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 probably didn't sort of help, or maybe it did help matters, right? Because Montreal kind of sort of caught fire near the end there. That's right. Um, on September the 6th, 
John McHale, the general manager, called up Jim Fanning, who was working out of the Expo's offices in uh, Montreal uh, in the scouting department and the player development department, and asked him, look, would you be interested in becoming the manager of the Expo's if I make a change with Dick Williams? So Jim Fanning said yes, and then the next day, um, Dick Williams was still the manager on September the 7th, and then John McHale called Jim Fanning up again. Look at Jim. I'm making a change. I'm replacing Jim or Dick Williams, and I want you to take over as manager. I want you to come down to Philadelphia uh, on September the 8th, and that's that's how it uh, turned out. It was pretty weird. Like Dick Williams was uh, a hard-nosed disciplinarian, kind of like, you know, really smiled. Some of the players didn't really like him, but they respected him. He was a winner with Oakland and the Red Sox, and uh, he was a former AAA manager with the Red Sox team in Toronto, won a couple of AAA championships with Toronto, and he was a winner. And so he had spent, what, four and a half years with the Expos. So it was a shock that he was fired by the Expos, and, and, but they, John McHill thought that a mild-mannered guy like Jim Fanning would be best suited heading into the final weeks of the season to try to get a playoff. But, and, it, and it worked out that way. But uh, guys like Juan Camardi, they protested against the move to fire Dick Williams. And, uh, but it worked out, and... Uh, the Expos uh, finally got into the postseason, even though Jim Fanning is, was never really considered a good manager. But some decisions he made just didn't work out. But uh, he's always credited as being the manager who got the Expos into the postseason for the first time. Yeah, that's true, I guess. But I, it also seems counterintuitive, right? Because, you know, Williams was the guy who was really kind of leading sort of the last couple of years of success. I mean, you know, again, 90 wins, 95 wins. But and yeah, but Montreal also squeaked into the into into the postseason by a, a mere half game, right? Of the Pirates over the Pirates for their to get in there. But well, all right. So g- g- set the scene for the for the uh, National League Division Series because uh, the Dodgers were the uh, the opponent, and uh, the, the way it ended, obviously, was sort of a a, 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 a deep mark and lasting mark in Expos history. Uh, what was it about sort of this series and, and this Blue Monday you refer to? What what was that and, and why is it so, I don't know, uh, uh, indelible, I guess, for better or for worse in Montreal Expo's history? Yeah, you know what? That, that series started out pretty good for the Expos, even though they lost the first game in Los Angeles. They came back and won the second game in Los Angeles when Ray Burroughs pitched a 2 nothing shutout and beat out the phenom Fernando Valenzuela to tie the series. And then the third game, the rest of the series, was, was going to be played in Montreal. So in game three, Jerry White, the fourth outfielder, you know, playing full-time pretty much in that series, he hits a three-run homer, and the uh, Expos win that game 4-1. Steve Rogers wins the game, and they're in the driver's seat in a best-of-five series. Uh, so they should have been 
really pumped up for the next game, but they really weren't. And they lost that game, the fourth game, 7-1, and the Dodgers tied the series 2-2 with the fifth and deciding game coming up. And then the the first scheduled uh, game five was, was rained out or snowed out because of bad weather. And then they finally, it was played on a Monday. Uh, and that's why it's called Blue Monday. Played on a Monday, and Rick Monday of the Dodgers hit the famous home run in the top of the ninth inning to give the Dodgers a 2-1 to lead, which they kept, even though the Expos came up in the bottom of the ninth inning and got a couple of men on base. But, uh, you know, that is the one of the turning points in Expos history. Uh, Blue Monday, for sure. It's a bad uh, memory for... Uh, Expos fans, and even, Tim, there's a few Expos fans won't buy my book, Blue Monday, because it's too depressing. <laughs> well, but it, but it, but it's obviously part of part of the lore. And and look, it was the, the closest taste, uh, frankly, that the uh, that the team uh, had uh, into, you know, into the into the postseason. I mean, I, the irony is, well, it's irony, but I mean, it's. Um, you wonder that this is a team. I guess we sort of more look more longitudinally now. I mean, with with an amazing array of quality players and all stars at that. I mean, we, Pete Rose made an appearance a little later in the in the years ahead, and I mean all kinds of a, a good uh, a reputation for developing talent. Uh, you know, um, but never really kind of a, a approached. Um, you know, uh, uh, that sort of level of success, despite sort of flashes of of brilliance and promise and possibility along the way. I get I guess I I, I struggle to figure out. And again, this is through the lens of, of growing up in the New York metro area and, 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 you know, obviously baseball in New York and, you know, having sort of a, uh, that sort of worldview for better or for worse. Um, what was it about this team that uh, they weren't jinxed, I guess, but but they certainly were. Uh, they had their moments with with Montreal, uh, the Montreal populace. There was certainly uh, a love there, perhaps maybe in in retrospect, as as, as the team sort of ultimately wound up leaving. But uh, well, describe to me, sort of, I guess, what what baseball in the '80s and onward uh, in Montreal was like, because it seemed like there was, you know, for every glimmer of hope, there was, you know, a, a couple of steps backward in uh, more abundantness or or uh, folly in the stadium. Uh, it, it was outdoors and cold, and then the the the, the dome, and it just didn't seem like yuppie. We got to get into that. I mean, it just seems like it was a, a an interesting and maybe not necessarily uh, a hugely successful, or maybe I'm missing it, and maybe there was something there that I just didn't get. Uh, being sort of uh, the naive uh, American uh, below the border. Well, very good point, uh, Tim. You know, after that stretch from 79 to 83, when they had some pretty good teams, you you mentioned it, there was that lull, uh, a stretch of time when the Expos were kind of not into it that great on the ball field from 84, 85, 86. They got new managers after, you know, Jim Fanning, uh, did some in 82 and 84, and then 83 and 84 were, 
Well, Bill Verdon was the disciplinarian who tried to come in, and it just didn't work out with him. And then they brought in a new manager, Buck Rogers, who was good with the media and very good with uh, pictures and talent. And uh, But, you know, in 87, they had a great year. They won 91 games, and I call them a, a Cinderella team that almost won the, N N N excuse me, the NL East, but they lost out near the end of the season. And they weren't expected to do much because they'd lost Andre Dawson to the Cubs through free agency, and they'd traded Jeff Rudin, a big reliever, after the 86 season to the Twins for a few guys who were not really that great, you know, well-known. And, uh, and then 88, they were so-so. And then they had that another great team in 89, Tim, when they should have uh, won the NL East, uh, they led the NL East for most of the year, and then the bats faded in August and September, and it was it ended up so bad. They you know they traded for Mike Lyson from the Mariners in exchange for Randy Johnson and Brian Holman and uh, Gene Harris. Randy Johnson ended up as a Hall of Famer, but uh, Broppen wanted uh, Dave Dombrowski, the general manager, to go for the jugular and let's try to win this pennant this year, and it didn't work out. And at the end, Charles Broppen, that's when he decided he was going to sell the team. Yeah, uh, so may explain maybe that sale, because obviously a change in ownership, uh, you know, is generally looked upon as being, okay, now something different, new new. New blood, new uh, new approaches and stuff. I, wh why did Bronfman sort of just give up on it and 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 look towards new ownership? Because it didn't seem like new ownership really made all that difference. Because frankly, as the '90s wore on, uh, some of the research I've seen, it would almost feel felt like that the Expos were also were kind of struggling to sort of be, you know, uh, were were serious enough to be taken to give, be given attention in the sports scene. It almost seemed like they were sort of fading out of. Uh, the Montreal sort of sports scene and maybe social scene at that. That, that. Exactly. You know, you're hitting some pretty good points there, Tim. Charles Bauman has told me several times over the last few years, including just uh, recently for my book called Always Remembered, that he um, thought of the attendance fading in the last number of years in the 80s uh, and the the thing that kind of really hit home was the the collapse in 1989. But he told me that his disinterest in owning the team was fading because of the so-called, you know, lackluster attendance for some pretty good teams that were coming into Olympic Stadium. The, some great talent, some great... Uh, players who came up to the great farm system of the Expos, and he got discouraged and disenchanted and disappointed. And But that 89 collapse was the thing that kind of just said, I'm, I'm giving it up. So after 20 years, he wanted to sell out. Well, there's also, too, I guess there's also this recurring sort of snake bit uh, kind of thing, too. I mean, obviously, I want to get into Felipe and uh, Moise Salou, because uh, obviously those are big names, especially Felipe being the manager for, for such an extended period of time. But, you know, I look at, for example, the curse of the 1994 season, right? Um, another player strike, right? And uh, again, almost fate intervening and not sort of in this case positively. I mean, I think a lot of people forget just how hot the Expos were in 94, right? I mean, talk about 
the, the, the opportunity to finally get over that hump. I mean, they were, you know, I, if I had it correct, I think they were, they were on pace for something like a, a crazy, like 105 or 106 game sort of winning season. Now, I, I don't know if they've gotten there, but I think that when the strike sort of occurred, I think they were something like 74 and 40 or something like that. And that's right. And then boom. Right. And then, I, may I explain that because I, in some respects, you know, I look at almost like the 94 season and we were talking about the, the, the blue Monday in, in 81, but you almost look at, at at 94 as being almost sort of the quintessential, you know, a, a microcosm of, of the futility of the Expos, at least on the field experience. That's right. See in 92, after the Expos fumbled and bumbled around that the new manager, Tom Reynolds, who was, Another one of those disciplinarian types who were just just loathed by the players. The Dan Duquette, the general manager at the time, made a great decision to bring in Felipe Lou, who probably should have been a manager in the major leagues long before that. But in May of '92, Felipe came along, and the rest of the year they really improved uh, in the standings. And then '93 was a tremendous year uh, as well, almost as good as '94. Uh, they won over 90 games in 1993, and that set the basis the basis for another great team in 94. And, uh, you know, that was a really young team, talent and a lot of speed and great pitching and great offense. And, you know, Jeff Fussell and Randy Milligan were probably the only guys over 30, and they had a great nucleus that could, should have been there for years. And then it all... Uh, fell apart when the, the, the players went on strike on August the 12th. And the even worse feeling was on September the 14th when Bud Selig decided to announce the cancellation of the season. So that really was a heartbreaking event for uh, Montreal ownership and fans. Well, it also seems, too, that it was sort of the exclamation point, I guess, around, and I know Bronfman was, was you know, beside himself, I guess, is, is seeing uh, the money uh, being spent in in Major League Baseball and trying to be competitive and, and getting sort of caught up in in having to sort of, you know, and arguably I think Montreal is sort of punching above its weight uh, given its uh, formidable uh, farm system and, and, and commitment to youth and players and development and all that, right? That's sort of arguably the quote-unquote right way, right, versus, you know, in the 90s, of course, you've got a bunch of expansion and, you know, a lot of new money and, and people kind of wanted to win sooner rather than later. And you know, there's a point at which I think that catches up with certain owners, especially those, you know, who've been either in or or directly owning uh, franchises for some time, right? Where they kind of have to make a decision whether they're going to, you know, compete and and spend that money and deficit spend and do all those things. Um, but I guess it also sort of brought into relief, and it, this seems like it was sort of the uh, the the defining narrative as the '90s. Uh, were on. I mean, 95 obviously was just a collapse of a team. They were selling players, right? And it was pretty clear that a lot of people were disenchanted either all of a sudden or accumulated over time with the facility known as Olympic Stadium, right? That it was not sort of the modern sort of uh, many revenue stream kind of uh, park that was becoming more uh, desired and frankly necessary in order to be competitive uh, to keep up with all the, the t- high uh, price talent. Yeah, you know what? That, that's a good point. See, the unfortunate thing of having a consortium of owners that took over from Charles Bronfman, uh is that they had 
they were constricted or restricted because they had very little money. Claude Brochu, the managing general partner, really had no money like, let's say, a Steinbrenner or whoever who had lots of money as a majority shareholder in a, in a team. It was Brochu with very little money himself running a consortium of owners who put in, what, $5 million to $7 million more as a uh, gesture, Canadian gesture to keep the team in Montreal but they basically had no money. And in uh, April of 1995, when the strike was finally settled, Brochu made the decision to uh, tell general manager Kevin Malone to, to trade John Wetland, Ken Hill, Marquis Grissom, and there was no offer to, to free agent Larry Walker. So the, basic, uh, the basis of that 94 team was gone basically because there was no money to really keep them around. Although Kevin Malone tried to pull, twist uh, Boshi's arm and try to say, look, give it another few months of 95 to see if this team will, will be competitive. But uh, Boshu decided right at, at spring training to have these guys uh, traded. Well, I, I, but if Bronfen, if Bronfen was still there, uh, they probably he probably would have uh, kept those players because he had all kinds of money and basically baseball was just a hobby for him because he made all his money through uh, liquor liquor and and so on. Well, I mean, aside from some of these bright spots on the field, I, Vladimir Guerrero, for example, I mean, you know, there's very interesting little pieces of 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 uh, of hope and and uh, and positivity. It feels to me, again, through the hindsight of history. And correct me if I'm wrong. It feels like the bulk of the the latter part of the '90s and obviously the early part of the 2000s was kind of almost sort of this deck chair rearrangement around how to how to reinject interest in this franchise. Uh, obviously, the idea of a new stadium to keep this franchise in Montreal, uh, and maybe at, at certain points over time, whether it be money or politics uh, or just simple. Uh, uh, fan interest that uh, at some point that it was kind of almost, uh, I don't know, in motion that it was not for long uh, by the turn of uh, of the decade to keep this franchise. Exactly. Like the uh, majority general partner, Claude Bouchou, uh, you know, in the late 90s, you know, they mounted an effort to to get a new stadium, you know, uh, site projected, and they did have a day you know, downtown Montreal, and uh, and when Beauchu left the ownership group and was replaced by Jeffrey Lawyer, Lawyer also promoted this idea of getting a new stadium, but unfortunately, either both. Uh, Brochure and lawyer were never able to get that concept of, of a stadium to fruition. And they even the, the commissioner at the time, Bud Selig, uh, tried to, to help Brochure out to approach the Quebec Premier Lucien Bouchard to try to put up funding for a new stadium. But um, Bouchard would say, we're, we're closing hospitals in 
Montreal, how can we fund a new stadium? So that, that concept of a new stadium, which would have really probably saved the franchise, it never came to fruition. And then in 2002, that's when Bud Selig uh, engineered this, what he calls that triple play to change the ownership group uh, in Montreal and Boston and Florida. But he, so Laurier sold his team to Major League Baseball and Selig and the owners allowed uh, John Henry to sell out the Marlins and buy his dream franchise, the Red Sox, and then Laurier bought the Marlins. So, so it's, Tim, from 2002, 2003, and 2004, a lot of Montreal fans just basically kind of gave up the franchise uh, because they were upset with Major League Baseball for taking over the team and not really caring about wanting to try to keep the franchise there. Yeah, and look, I also, and obviously, Montreal is a huge hockey town, and that's that's obviously probably, probably first, second, and third uh, level of interest, and and that sort of, you know, that that sort of weighs heavily um, uh, too. But I also think, you know, in many respects, I think you have uh, local government there and recognizing, perhaps uh, a little bit earlier than uh, the reality check that finally is hitting a, a lot of metropolitan areas now and local municipalities that. You know, uh, what do we spend money on, right? A tax-supported uh, 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 stadia and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, in some respects, it's almost uh, a, a, a a prescient uh, understanding that, you know, uh, there are various needs that municipalities have. And maybe, you know, uh, uh, building a stadium that is uh, largely for the benefit of a for-profit enterprise that's owned by a small group of people uh, may not sort of be it. I'm sure it's much more complicated than that. But but, I, you know, it feels to me that even before 2002, uh, that there was almost sort of this uh, feeling in the air that, um, you know, that, that, that the Expos were not just going to – they weren't much longer for, for, for the city of Montreal. I, I guess what I would – I'm really curious, and I don't want to get back to some happier memories as we kind of maybe looked around the corner here. Maybe you can explain what it was like during those years because there was just sort of this odd and strangely now new again concept – of having a team and having it spend a good portion of its season, 20, 30 games uh, elsewhere, and in this case, Puerto Rico of all places. I mean, it must have been a real challenge to be a fan of the Montreal Expos during those years. Oh, for sure. You know, Bud Selig, he told me for my book, Always Remembered, and he's told reporters this before, that because of the lack of interest and poor attendance in Montreal in the late 90s and the early 2000s, that this was a concept, a pretty weird concept. They wanted to try some games in Puerto Rico to, as an option to create revenue uh, to try and uh, you know keep the team in Montreal. But it was a pretty weird uh, concept. But it's true... See, most of the time in the existence of the Expos franchise, they they never had very good season ticket figures, Tim, except for probably that period between 79 and 83 when it was just rocking. That was the golden age of baseball. Even in 94 and 93, they um, 
they didn't really have great season ticket figures. In 94, they had a lot of great walk-up crowds when they were buzzing in 94, and they were almost unbeatable. But they would have people just walking off the street and buy tickets the day of the game. But there weren't many season ticket holders. And in, in pursuing years, there were never very many season ticket holders. I, I can't give you any figures, but it was very low. So Major League Baseball could see that. Montreal people could see that. But uh, and, and the stadium was big, right? too big, arguably, right? It's cavernous, right? And it, why, why, why commit to season tickets when you know you can basically get a seat relatively easily because it's 50-some-odd thousand seats? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. So... They could, you know, they could come in the day of the game and buy a ticket and probably sit in a pretty good location. All right. Well, so square this with me. So I, I know a lot of this is all in hindsight. And this, maybe we'll have another conversation at some point to kind of go into some more granulars and, and some anecdotes and all that kind of stuff. But, but it, you know, it's interesting. I, I was, I've been in Montreal a couple of times over the last couple of years, and. Um, you know, it's all it's interesting. It seems like there's almost this amnesia uh, of nostalgia, I guess. Uh, you, you walk in the, in the, in the, the, the uh, you know, in the old town and, and just all over the place. You go to all kinds of stores and and establishments and stuff. And there is I don't know if it's relatively new or it's always been there, but there is very much. It's almost like the expos, at least in the merchandise realm, is still very is almost like still there. Um, and, and it's almost like they're, and, and I know Montreal continues to be floated as, uh, you know, an opportunity for potentially a baseball team to be relocated, uh, back to, to there. Now, I don't know if that's the Tampa Rays, uh, Montreal sharing arrangement or, or, or what, but I, I guess what I'd love to sort of get a sense of, and you're closer to it, uh, than I, than I am geographically, at least, what is it in the psyche, I guess, of the current uh, Montreal uh, citizenry around around the idea of baseball, uh, around that of the Expos. I mean, it feels to me like there is absolutely a a warm, fuzzy nostalgia for this team, despite what seems to be, if you look at it, as we've kind of done over the last you know forty five minutes or so, it, it maybe you know for except for a couple of of blips and and fits and starts, I don't know if there was a true love affair of of lasting quality and or uh, of sizable scale and, and attendance uh, during these years? I, is it kind of wallpapering over the history or are we trying to, is there a hagiography going on here or what? <laughs> Good point. See, in recent years, there has been a phenomena about the fever of Expos fans and the sale of memorabilia. So here's what happened from 2004 to 2012, Tim, there was basically no interest in reviving baseball in Montreal after they left for Washington. Eight, eight years had gone by, and then Gary Carter died in February 2012, and that's when Gwen Komardi, who was close to Gary Carter, um, decided, I want to do something about reviving interest in getting a team in Montreal. So what he ended up doing was he organized a reunion of the 81 Expos in 2012, a reunion of the 94 Expos in 2014, and he was the catalyst to beat the drums, starting to beat the drums, and he was the catalyst who was the guy who kind of helped to arrange the Blue Jays 
exhibition games played at the end of every March beginning in 2013. So I think without Cromarty, there would be none of this fever. And in the last few years, this memorabilia stuff that people want to buy, Expos hats and uniform tops and shoots and scarves, it really is quite a phenomena. And it's, uh, it's something that Major League Baseball in New York has noticed all of this memorabilia craze, the fact that Stephen Bronfman and Mitch Garber and his ownership group are prepared to take on vast amounts of money to bring a team to Montreal. So it's quite a different uh, turnaround compared to the dying days of the franchise when there were basically no interest. Now they say that's 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 really interesting, and I, I you want, so what do you think the prospects are for a return uh, now? And maybe maybe that was a question I could have asked a few months ago, but maybe now, especially given the the, the very the the vastly changed world we all live in now, and arguably maybe pro sports being rocked to its core among other industries. So I guess it's a weird way of asking the question: Where do you sort of see Montreal and baseball? in the years to come? Is it, is it an inevitability? Is it, is it a, a distinct possibility? Is it a, is it a pipe dream given all that we've discussed? I, what do you think the possibility or the, the, the scenario of Montreal and baseball again? I, I think it will happen, but it will be a few years. It's, it's dragged out in, in the last couple of years. I think it's frustrating for everybody you know, whether it's the media or baseball fans or the ownership group of Charles, or Stephen Brockman and Mitch Garber and his partners, uh, it's really dragged out. I think Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred is fed up with the, the Tampa Bay situation. It's They're flogging a dead horse in Tampa Bay. They're flogging a dead horse in Miami. I think they want to keep Oakland because Oakland's been around for, what, 40 years, 50 years. But um, the Tampa Bay sharing experiment with Montreal is pretty weird. I don't think it will ever happen. I think before that ever happens is that Major League Baseball will allow Stephen Brockman and his group to buy Tampa Bay outright 100% and move the team to Montreal and Bronfman's group will even try to pitch in and help buy out the lease expenses at the stadium in Tampa Bay, where Tampa Bay and the St. Pete's municipal people want to sort of buy in that franchise till 2028. And, you know, that seems like forever away, 2028. But, uh, you know, expansion, I think that Montreal would be high up there on an expansion list. But you know this you mentioned that this latest pandemic scenario, I wouldn't be surprised if one or two teams might have to fold uh, before twenty twenty one because the the expenses involved in not playing and and paying players and employees it may be too much yeah i you know I think that's right now i, I I've been saying this for a number of years, and again obviously through the the lens of history and and our little weird, odd pursuit of, of teams that no longer are around and didn't make it for whatever reasons. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you could make the argument prior to all this that we were sort of at, and maybe are at, still at peak sports, right? Uh, 
How many more teams? I mean, you mentioned the word expansion. I, I you know, I would have even said even before all this crisis uh, sort of came down that maybe, you know, if Montreal were to be back in the, into the mix, into the show again, it would be a relocation, not an expansion, right? Uh, how many, you know, we have 30 teams in Major League Soccer, right? And I'm the biggest soccer fan there is in the United States and a huge, you know, and I, I follow teams like Montreal and the, the New York Red Bulls and Chicago Fire and all that. But, you know, 30 teams, I mean, like, wow. I mean, that's, that's and a, and a half billion dollars for an NHL expansion franchise which is pushing 31, 32 teams. I mean, I don't, you know, it doesn't seem, especially now, that those levels of revenues and or uh, local economies, uh, and look, in the case of Montreal, we still come back to the same issue that arguably was a big part of them ultimately leaving, and that's a stadium, right? There has to be a new baseball park. I mean, I, 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 Olympic Stadium certainly not going to cut it, even if it, in its well-kept state now, right? You want to return to the old reasons why they left in the first place, right? That's right. See, um, Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred has said that he, it's a requirement of Montreal get a new downtown city, and they do have a, a prospective piece of land where they would have a stadium. So that's kind of fairly set in stone where they might uh, have the stadium. But uh, I guess they need, of course, uh, some go-ahead from Major League Baseball to uh, start building the stadium. Um, but it's so dragged out. Uh, ah, you know, you never know. You talk about expenses, uh, Tim. It's very true. In this modern day and age, there's so many things that the general public can do, not just sports to go out and see, and or people just want to stay at home and watch TV. There's so many different sports that are out there in each city. It's uh, quite a juggernaut of activities that, uh, and a lot of money, uh, you know, that is required to pay uh, all these athletes to play in a city. It's uh, it's quite a it's quite an endeavor to have to bring a franchise into, let's say, Montreal. It's it's very expensive. All right. Well, lots more to explore. Hopefully we'll get to do this in another another conversation. But a couple of quick wrap-up questions. Number one, if the team, if a team does ultimately return to Montreal, do you think the name Expos has to be part of the mix or they would dare try another name? I, I think that would be a good name. Even, uh, well, I guess they wouldn't be able to use the name Royals because the Kansas City Royals have that name. But... Um, but it seems like there's a it's lot, of, it it, there's a lot of, of, of value in that Expos name, right? The nostalgia alone would seem like it would be worthwhile. And look, Major League Baseball owns the rights, right, to that that label? That's right. Yeah, I think I think the the ownership group, uh, Brockman and Garber and all those guys, I mean, I'm sure they'd like to try to keep that name. Uh, other names, uh, I haven't heard too many other names, but I guess maybe if they got closer to the a date when uh, a team gets coming uh, that the other names would come up. All right. Well, I hate to make this the last question, but but it, it's the ultimate curiosity, and, and perhaps maybe uh, we can go deeper on this. But um, I, I, I cannot let a conversation, or at least our initial conversation, uh, about the uh, the Montreal Expos of yore uh, go without uh, just talking about just quickly about this uh, this character known as Yuppie. 
So in 78, there was there was somebody that preceded uh, this character, Yuppie, and it was called Suki. Is that do I have that right? That's right. He was the first mascot, but but it, it went like horribly wrong. Right. And and maybe you have a little bit of either memory or are there any anecdotes or whatever about this somewhat curious character who ironically now is is was is now owned by the Montreal Canadiens. I, I think the the only mascot that I've ever seen or heard that was sort of adopted from one sport and brought to another. Uh, am I giving Yuppie too much uh, uh, credit here? Uh, uh, was he was he a, a, a revered character? Is he, is he, is, <laughs> there you go. That's, yeah, that's sure. the reaction He's I'm looking the, for. The overweight character, impish, cute, colorful uniform, colorful mascot who would uh, go around and be a a joy for all the fans, including the children, and he would be a nuisance for the incoming teams, the opposing teams. And, you know, in the uh, 22-inning game in 1989 against the Dodgers, the umpire threw him out because Tommy Lasorda of the Dodgers complained about him sitting on top of the the Dodgers' dugout. (laughs) So he's had quite a... uh, a pretty good run with the Expos. Uh, now he's, you know, he does this stuff with the Montreal Canadiens hockey team. But I'm sure he somehow they could work out an arrangement. Maybe if he, if the Expos came back, that he'd work uh, the Expos too. And I am told uh, by my uh, my French compatriots that uh, that Yuppie is French for yippie. And um, uh, apparently this Suki character, well, I don't know if Suki means anything in French. Um, uh, that was 1978. That was sort of a one-year experiment. Apparently, it was uh, uh, it was the exact opposite. He wasn't sort of jovial and 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 impish and and fun. It's it, it's apparently scared a lot of kids away. And and um, yeah, some sure. point, at some point we'll dedicate some conversation to to that because uh, that's that's all part of uh, of the lore that is this this franchise known as the Montreal Expos. Danny, how about how about a chance to promote? You have. Count them, uh, what, six, eight books or so on the Expos? Maybe a little bit of a hint of, of the writings and the, and the, the specific areas of Expos uh, history that you've done and um, where we can find them all and, and, and all that stuff. That's right. So I've written six books on the Expos going back to 1997. And uh, specifically, I wrote about the 80 excuse me, the 94 Expos with co-author Bill Young, and then I wrote by myself the book on the 81 Expos called Blue Monday, and there were several other uh, books as well, including one that appeared in French, and the one that just came out about six weeks ago, Tim, is called Always Remembered, and the subtitle is uh, New Revelations and Old Tales About Those Fabulous Expos, and it's a... a uh, collection of memories from 69 to 2004. It's got 92 photographs, and, and I interviewed 94 people. So there's, um, what I tried to do with this book was to come up with new revelations and new secrets unlocked that people maybe had never heard about before. And I'm getting some good feedback on Twitter and Facebook that they, you know, they're reading stuff that they've never read before about the Expo. So it's I uh, hit a few good points uh, with with this book, and we can get it at um, uh, the Canadian 
uh, bookseller website called indigo.ca. So far, it's not on Amazon, but I hope to get it on Amazon. And they can, people can also order copies by emailing this uh, email address, exposebook2020 at yahoo.com. All right, Ekran, merci to our new pal, Danny Gallagher, and our conversation, our first one of hopefully many into the world of the Montreal Expos. And, uh, you know, as Montreal and baseball seem to be a thing again, or at least in people's minds, uh, you know, we'll probably get into a little bit more of the stories of the original Expos. Lord knows there's plenty of them, and we just barely and proverbially scratched the surface with this conversation. Uh, but uh, uh, deeper uh, learnings may be found uh, in a bunch of uh, Danny Gallagher's books, uh, including his latest, literally just out, called Always Remembered, New Revelations and Old Tales About Those Fabulous Expos. Uh, as of the uh, uh, dropping of this episode, the first week of May, uh, you will find that at indigo.ca. That's a Canadian uh, book website, indigo, I-N-D-I-G-O, CA. Uh, I'm sure it'll be available uh, soon on Amazon. And if uh, you're listening to this uh, way past uh, uh, May, uh, you can check our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com uh, and uh, see if uh, those various links are there to Amazon. Uh, but uh, regardless, uh, wherever you get the book, uh, you will enjoy it as well as uh, two books that we do know are on, on Amazon as well as on Indigo. Uh, that are a little bit uh, more specific to a couple of different topics that we that we talked about earlier. Uh, one we recommend is uh, Ecstasy to Agony, the 1994 Montreal Expos, how the best team in baseball ended up in Washington 10 years later. That's his collaboration uh, with Bill Young. And uh, as also alluded to earlier, Blue Monday, the Expos, the Dodgers, and the home run that changed everything. Uh, Danny's uh, uh, collaboration with Larry Parrish, uh, and again, a little depressing if you're a Montreal Expos fan, but uh, obviously part of the uh, the, the lore and uh, the story of the Expos uh, for all uh, its uh, its worth. And you know, we uh, appreciate, of course, uh, not only Danny being part of the show, but you listening, uh, of course. And uh, if you want to uh, find out more about what we're up to, maybe you're new to the proceedings. Uh, like I said, our website is GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. It's all one word. And uh, not only will you find uh, links to uh, these books this week, but all the media from all of our guests, if they've had them, uh, as well as all the episodes. So you want to download them or share them or stream them, do whatever you want. Uh, they're all there, right there at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Of course, uh, if uh, you want to uh, listen to our podcast each and every week, just 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 set your podcast catcher uh, to our little web feed. You'll find it out there wherever good uh, podcasts are found. You'll find us. We're listed there. And, uh, of course, on our website as well, you can uh, find all of our social media links uh, or just add them directly to your feeds. Of course, at Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us at uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And, uh, of course, you'll find us on Facebook as well. There is a page devoted to us there. While you're on our website, you can also sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Uh, there's a little convenient link there, and we'll send you a little uh, heads up as to what each and every uh, week's episode is going to be a few days before uh, the hoi polloi. And of course, you can send us email to as well from the website or directly. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. See, it's pretty easy. 
what is not easy, of course, is uh, putting this uh, show together each and every week as Jerry Payne, our intrepid uh, producer each and every week has done for three plus years. God knows why he puts up with us, but he does. And he does a damn good job making us sound somewhat professional and decently listenable. Uh, we thank him, of course, for this week's effort, of, uh, as we always do. And uh, of course, we thank you for listening. And of course, please, please, please stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. Do all the right things that you're supposed to be doing. Uh, don't contribute to the problem or, or make it worse. Uh, and uh, and recognize that uh, we're all challenged by uh, this situation that we're in. Nobody is uh, accepted from any of it. And, um, you know, of course, uh, do all the right things to... Uh, to stay uh to stay safe and um and uh we look forward to listening well no, hopefully you'll look forward to listening to us next week uh as we uh hopefully got a good show for you uh and more to come of course stay safe everybody thank you so much for listening and of course we're going to leave you with some song uh, a little light ditty uh and of course it's the official theme song of the montreal expos of course well would you expect anything else all right take care everybody we'll see you next week stay safe and uh, be healthy bye-bye